Hello and welcome to the third season of How Does the Social Work, the podcast that brings the social back into social work. Our previous season was a collaboration between Brunel University social work students and the Ginger Giraffe user-led cooperative. In this season, our students take full control of the podcast. So, are you ready? Here we go. Hello and welcome to the second episode of a new season, How Does the Social Work? In this season, we'll, we will take an international perspective on anti-racist social work. My name is Jade and my co-host for this season is Radhika. We were both second year postgrad social work students at Brunel University, London. We'll be co-hosting today's episode with Chienge, who is a first year social work student at Brunel University. Welcome Chienge. Thank you. Okay, so our guest for today's episode is Zibanele Zimba, and I'm going to let him provide a brief introduction on who he is and why he's here today. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be here, feeling privileged. So I am Zibanele. Zimba is my surname. I am based in South Africa. Or the more north part of South Africa in um, in Johannesburg, in which currently I am in academia. I am a lecturer with the University of Johannesburg, social work and community development. First generation, perhaps, to attain highest qualification in my family. And the second generation, I was a weekend South African. So meaning that uh, during the early days of industrialization in South Africa, my parents came down for a search of better job. So that makes me a second generation. So I am a social activist, been involved in a number of uh, social activist agendas here in South Africa during my student days. And we have pioneered um, conversations and, and, and demonstrations on free fee education, on decolonial um, uh, social education. So that's briefly, I mean, uh, about me, so uh, nice to, to be in the conversation. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. So today in particular, we were interested in your work within the book, Anti-Racist Social Work, International Perspectives. And so, so that article, we will be linking when we submit the, when we have the episode submitted, we'll have that linked for all our listeners to be able to read as well so that they could follow the context of what we're talking about today. So I guess first we'd sort of like to hear about what made you interested in this area of social work and just sort of give us a brief background of the history of South Africa, just for our listeners who may not be aware of South African history so that they can have a bit more context when it comes to the inequalities that you go on to talk about. Mm -hmm. So I think for me, as I've been said in my introduction that I am, sort of first generation in education to attain highest qualification. Also having spoken about the fact that I I am a second generation of immigrants from Mozambique to to South Africa. So it it tells you that I'm an individual who grew up in uh, an environment that I was presented with barriers in all facets and aspects of my family life, as well as my 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 sort of livelihood as an as an individual, you know, growing up 
it wasn't a choice for me to find myself in the work around anti-racism issues of social justice. It kind of like I was born into it uh, because I sort of opened my eyes, really feeling and realizing systematic injustices, having to ask yourself the question, why you not like other kids, you know, even if it's other kids from the same race or other kids with different race, you know, those questions became very clear for me at a very early age. So with that, and then also growing with the historical narratives of our country, particularly in South Africa, all that drawn me into really what I do today, what I spend my time researching, what I spend my time getting myself involved into, it's really deeply embedded into systematic structural issues that are based on inequalities, which are connected deeply into the history of, of South Africa. You know, when, you know, when, it, when maybe perhaps if we have to talk about the historical uh, background of South Africa, for those that do not know South Africa, it may well be that we have to start into the 1400s, you know, the pre-colonial and uh, the colonial conquest, you know, to better understand how what is later known as apartheid has got into into us into the conversation that we're having now and maybe perhaps on the on the book chapter that was sort of published around around that you know and also to begin to understand how it gave rise to the need of social welfare in in south africa but let's then just zoom in maybe perhaps in the 1948 where it was the regime of apartheid which was led by the National Party uh, Minority Government. So from the 1943, there was a development of an African nationalism, uh, which was based on ethnic identity, which was later known as, as an apartheid. And the objective of apartheid at the time was to preserve an African identity, protected white supremacy and economic privilege. It prevented African urbanization and social advancement, but it what it did, it elevated African community. So what in the end you begin to look into, you begin to understand that this was the South Africa during the 1948 into the 1994, when we sort of attain uh, democracy in South Africa. So when you begin to understand that, one sort of also begin to look in aspects of how was the welfare at the time, you know, and I suppose, most of us who sort of began to open our eyes at the dawn of, of democracy were beginning to also continuously to see the continuation of the systematic sort of inequalities that were carried during the 1943 to the 1994 era, where the welfare sort of alliance is disintegrated at the time, which I suppose it is disintegrated around the 1960s, you know, under the nationalist rule, you know. So at, at, at that time, if you study history of South Africa and wanting to understand what South Africa was looking like, it's when that white families were sort of uh, stabilized and poverty was declining only amongst the white families, you know, and, and, and those that maybe perhaps as white families could fall into the cracks, the government was able to sort of handle that. But what was happening at the time is that the apartheid agenda was deeply embedded into segregation. And I suppose if we want to understand that, we'd look at different historical eras that I would perhaps talk about. But what I want to talk to in terms of linking the historical picture of South Africa 
in social work particular, you begin to understand that this was the time where there was an absence of an appropriate social work response to these circumstances, which somehow could demonstrate very, which could be instrumental in terms of, 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 of working towards uh, or against uh, the apartheid uh, regime at the time. But there is an argument that at the time social work was at the center or very instrumental into the state in perpetuating inequalities into the country. So in a nutshell, it can be argued that social work was at the center of implementing racial welfare in South Africa. And I suppose when you look at what was happening at the time, one would begin to also understand why it was it was that so. But just to basically finish with this in the context of the question is that we can take a step back and look at history in South Africa that propelled, you know, uh, the rise of radical and transformative social work in the 1950s when there was a Populations Registration Act, meaning now this is where people started being identified as, as black, white, colored, Indians, and et cetera, you know, and the Immortality Act, which sort of uh, prevented individuals to have any form of relations either being sexual intercourse with persons of different color, meaning that Europeans were not allowed to have sexual intercourse with um, uh, anyone who is not, not European. And looking also at the 1950s, we had the Group uh, Areas Act, which somehow said particular individuals of a certain race need to stay in a particular um, um, sort of geographical location, you know, so, which was somehow far away from economic activities. So if you begin to understand these historical eras, you'll see that in 1948, the national government took into, into, into government. And then in 1950, just two years in between, they begin to enact laws that were now marching into the front of segregation in favor of African people. But if you just continue to look at 1952, there was a launch of the defiance campaign, you know, and in 1955, there was a Congress of the People in Cliff Town, which adopted the Freedom Charter which is on the basis of the understanding that those who work the land must actually own the land. And those that are sort of working into the land and getting a, a production of the land should also have equal ownership of the production of that land, which later on, it was not the case because only the white supremacy were now owning land and also were actually owning the production of that. And black people became at the center of cheap labor and whatnot. But moving forward, looking at the 1956 to 1961, I suppose one can relate to this in an understanding that this is when now Mandela was prison, you know, for life to go to Robben Island you know, which later on he became the first black president, which was was the beginning of the era, you know, where radical black people came into, into the front, questioning the status quo. So in the 1956, 1961, that's when Mandela was sort of uh, prisoned. And in 1959, we can look at the birth of the Pan-African uh, Congress, meaning it was getting now closer into the black consciousness now having individuals such as like the Steve Beagle are beginning to talk about black identity, what it means to be black, what can we do about the situation that we are facing in the African in the African continent, in particular as black individuals, how do we take our own power? But moving forward to some of the historical significant moments, the 1960s, the Sharpville massacre, you know, where 69 people were killed for protesting, not, not wanting to carry uh, oppressive, Pass as a form of identification 
that was enacted in 1950. So it may mean that if you were black, you had to carry uh, personal identification, uh, you know, that was degrading somehow. You were not allowed to leave the area in which you were sort of uh, located to in terms of the uh, groups act. And, you know, if you look at the one, maybe perhaps the last significant moment is the 1976, where there was a student protest in Soweto that were protesting against the government insistence that the, the Africans should be the medium of instruction. So we would see that the youth of 1956 lost their life in that day. So that was sort of the South Africa in which social work was practicing into the South Africa, which I also grew up understanding it was. And I continued to see that, you know, when I also began to go to school in the village I grew up, it was all around me, you could see the legacy of the apartheid around us. And also when I went to university, I could easily see in terms of how everything was structured systematically to put us in a certain role, in a certain position, in a certain systematic kind of functioning. So all of that is an indication of how over the past 30 years or even more, it felt to sort of grow in South Africa, you know, and even today, one begin and also continue to see such systematic um, um, issues. So it's just in a nutshell to give a picture how sort of South Africa looked like without giving you, of course, the geographic composition of, of how South Africa looks like. Thank you for that presentation. Um, I just want to follow up on that and ask from the sort of social work context, how was it like, and this is very much looking at the historical elements here, how was it, how was social services during the time of apartheid? We obviously know that South Africa was sort of divided, segregated, and I always kind of wondered what social work in practice was, what was the difference between being a social worker which in the sort of white community and what was social work else in the other communities? Great. So maybe perhaps one needs to sort of begin to, to understand the conceptualization of welfare at the time, which was primarily designed to advance welfare of white families. And social work practice was mainly to execute interventions that are advancing um, white families at the time because the laws were favoring um, those that uh, were, were white at the time. But maybe if I perhaps begin to also talk about uh, an indication of the difference and how uh, social work was and the difference between uh, uh, perhaps the white and black uh, communities at the time, the list will be endless. But maybe perhaps if I try to just bring it close with respect to just pointing out some few elements that were actually going wrong or rather injustices into the black communities, which was totally opposite to what was going into, into the white families. Maybe that will also give you a picture in terms of how the practice was, but I will also attempt to sort of bring it close in terms of what then happened that gave rise in terms of what social workers can do into into sort of black communities. But if you understand what I spoke about in terms of the groups act, you know, talking about uh, that blacks were pushed forcefully to, to, to be placed into, 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 into areas where there were no economic activities, into areas in which um, 
they had no right to own land, to own any property. And that on its own, you know, was just an, 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 an indication of what type of communities that Black people were expected to live and, and also survive. And with that, there came restrictions in terms of what you are allowed to sort of carry uh, in the process, such as an identification, you know, that everywhere you go, if you're located in this particular Bantu stand, when you leave this location, you add it going to another location, you must carry a sort of an identification. And if you don't have an identification, you will be physically punished or even imprisoned. And we've lost a lot of brothers and sisters that were sort of physically punished and some of them might have well also disappeared. And later on, we had a truth and, and reconciliation committee where they tried to actually get the, the information around what really happened during during that time. And the second thing is about Blacks needed to, to sort of um, 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 do job for, for food, if perhaps not food, they were expected to provide cheap labor. So those were actually conditions that were happening from the Bantu stand or from the community in which you were located into in terms, in terms of the cheap labor and, and, and sort of working for food. You begin now to understand that was the condition that they were sort of exposed into. And moving forward in terms of that, one realizes that at a time, you know, you needed to also commute from the area which you are located into, into the place in which you are going to work, either the cheap labor or for food. So the, the, the third element is about that there were no rights into those black communities in terms of voting rights. They couldn't choose who would lead them, they couldn't choose who could be in government, which means that uh, utilitarian uh, leaders were imposed upon them. And that means they had no voice over what what could happen about their community or what they feel it should, it should be the order of business into their respective communities. And also the element of that into environments which Blacks were commuting into, either being to the cities, there were shops made particular for Blacks and there were shops made particular for white and also public toilets and, 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 and beach and, and, and all the facilities that one would require for, for a well-being were clearly segregated, you know, if not segregated, were purely for, for white individuals. And also the issue of education, meaning that if you are placed into that group area uh, kind of um, environment, you had your own education, there was your own healthcare system, which was sort of different from the welfare or rather the healthcare system and the education that was being received by by the white individuals into their own areas. And lastly, the element of sport, you know, where it's sort of also classified that there were black sport and there were, there were white sport, you know, such as cricket and rugby, which we even can see that even to this day, that it's a very racialized sport. It is predominantly a white sport. We still live with the legacy of the apartheid in terms of that segregation. So if you, if, if you look at all these laws really prohibited blacks and they were not applicable to whites, meaning that the opposite of what I've mentioned was actually happening into, into white community. So here we, be, we have even began to scratch the surface. So these issues are systematic issues. And one need to remember that upper state, upper state was a systematic operation of black and therefore all welfare related services were favoring white people and black social workers at a time were sort of 
placed within the context of providing charity work to, to black communities, while white communities were actually advancing and protecting white families. So if you look at what I've mentioned earlier, it has all what is going wrong in terms of the black communities. And if later on you want to engage with the question of differences from a context of inequality, you will then begin to see what a black community looked like during the apartheid and what it still looks like even today. What a white community looked like in the apartheid era and what it still looks like now. So those, those sort of differences are still present even in our modern day. We can still see the legacies of, of what was created in terms of the differences between, between black community and, and white community. Oh, thank you. Thank you for that again. And I'm just going to try and follow up with sort of the issue, the question about social work in practice. So would you say that social workers in practice had solidarity across the communities? Or did we have a, um, a period where you had white social workers operating largely in white communities? and then the Black social workers operating largely in the Black community? See, that's a beautiful question, you know, because it begins really to also uh, show what was the reality at the time. And I suppose if we, we zoom that a little bit back and looking into the 1976, it's when we sort of began to, to see an action of laws which enabled social workers to render services only to their own group. So if you were a white social worker, you would render services to white families and white communities. If you're a black social worker, you would render services to black communities and, and black families. But the question is what services that were offered at the time, it's, it's just a question for another day in trying to unpack and understand what really were the services that were claimed and provided at the time. But the solidarity that sort of but maybe perhaps before I go to the solidarity, just to, to talk about that there was also this uh, kind of differentiation in terms of salaries of social workers. So if you're a white social worker, you would receive a different salary to that of a, a black social worker. So it was all of that around about the time of 1978. And, and, and that began to propel solidarity between social workers, whether you're a black social worker or a white social worker, to begin now to think about the need for radical and transformative uh, sort of approach in challenging the apartheid social welfare, in which we began now in the 1980s to sort of see a two-day strike that was conducted by social workers protesting in, in Cape Town, you know, and protesting against the apartheid social welfare system that was widely racialized, that was favoring more of the white families and white children, that in that two days, it was just a demonstration of showing that enough is enough, a radical and transformative change is needed within the welfare system. And with that, if you understood in terms of uh, who the banning issues were, were sort of affecting most, there were the black social workers' hands, they were the ones that organized 
the sort of the sort of that, that two-day strike, which they were called South African Black Social Workers Association, you know, in partnership with the Build a Better Society. So they were the ones that were the center of trying to usher a new era of transformative and radical social welfare. Uh, to begin to show solidarity amongst themselves because there was a fragmentation that was created by the apartheid government, you know, in terms of those social workers that were funded by the state and working for the state in the welfare state were sort of pushing the agenda of the apartheid because their salaries were paid by the government. But those that are working for non-profit organizations were the one at the forefront in fighting against all of these injustices. And therefore, there came a time that they came together in solidarity wanted to ensure that there's some transformation that is, that is sort of pushed forward in fighting against uh, a very segregated welfare system in South Africa at the time, not about the 1980s. Thank you. You've, you've mentioned a lot and you've gone into real depth talking about the, the almost divide among you know, the professional side, the racial elements, the political elements, and it all stemming from apartheid and the states and this divide with the social workers as well. But in your chapter, you also talk about um, the economic and welfare policy also being affected by neoliberal ideology. Could you just give us um, and give, give the listeners an idea of what neoliberal ideology is and how it impacted economic and welfare policy and, and social work? Thanks. So perhaps it's, it's, it's important to sort of understand on how social work emerged alongside with neoliberalism policies and how it sort of uh, emerged within the lens of uh, capitalism and the control around that. But what one needs to perhaps uh, begin to understand is when you, when you look at the dawn of democracy in particular, when you when you look at the culture of neoliberalism, you begin to sort of understand that the social welfare sector and the public sector and social work practice as it is located within the public sector, it, is, it was began to be seen as a business thinking practice, you know, uh, and with element of uh, private sector, which sort of transpired into the activities of, of social work, which social work were expected to function as far as possible uh, as a commercial profiting marketing business. And we also begin to see all of those tenants in, in our modern social work practice in terms of the expectation of production of statistics and numbers in terms of how many families you have contacted, how many people have provided what service and whatnot. So it's about more of the number and showing that uh, you can reach to certain number of people. This is where you take our, I mean, the money that we put, you know, into. And also understanding in terms of that element of reducing sort of uh, public budget, but yet at the same time, one is expected to sort of realize rights that are deeply embedded into constitution of of this country. And when you are looking at issues relating to neoliberalism, one begins to understand that here in South Africa, we're dealing with uh, pro-neoliberalism government with policies that favors the reduction of government spending in, in relation to social relief. So when you take in light of what happened in COVID-19, so the government essentially said that it's prepared to spend about 350 rand 
to individuals that are unemployed, which unemployment is equivalent to 17 pounds per month. So when you look at that, it tells you that the neoliberal policies are sort of having a strong influence in terms of the welfare function and how that could sort of uh, operate. And we operate within uh, those elements and influence and tailoring. So the second, the second thing is about when you when you sort of look at what we as social workers are dealing with in the country, we're dealing with issues such as gender-based violence, unemployment, poverty, corruption, inability of the state to sort of provide effective intervention. So all of these, when you look at it within that element of how we emerged, you know, with post-apartheid, we emerged within these promised land that was filled with neoliberalism and capitalism. And we also have to sort of being able to sort of deal with economic racism, where the economy is sort of controlled by a few white families or perhaps white male domination around that aspect. And also lastly, if you can just imagine on the issue of dealing with uh, social work post COVID-19, you know, it's also still one of those difficult things trying to to, to understand the driving forces of the economy and yet at the same time, trying to balance and realize the rights of individuals into our communities. So this is just a, the, the complex intricacies that are sort of engulfing uh, practice of social work in, in post-South African particular into, into the context that relates to neoliberalism policies around that. And in, in your research paper, you talked about the leadership that social worker um, provided during the apartheid struggle, but you also seems to suggest that there, there seems to be that leadership no longer seems to exist in within social work today. And I wondered what you thought would be the difference. What does it? What what does social work needs in South Africa today to provide the leadership in in a way that enables them to address the issues, the social issues that are within South Africa today? Hmm. So that's really a very interesting question, you know, when you look at the leadership of social work during the apartheid era, looking at the leadership that is sort of needed at, at, at this current South Africa post-apartheid. Um, post what one perhaps need to, to, to look into and what we social workers need to begin to look into, we need to perhaps begin to think about reimagining the system. We need to begin to think about we are no longer dealing with, um, in part, it's about policy discrimination uh, because one could sort of still continue to argue that the, the policy enacted, it's still practically impossible for, for, for black individuals and other mm -hmm. racial groups in South Africa to feel included into economic activities of the country, you know. But we need to begin to think that now we're no longer dealing with um, maybe perhaps what can call an obvious race, you know, and on the basis of you are black, come white, you're colored, you're Indian, don't come here, don't enter here, stay there. There's more like progressive policies were put in place, including the constitution with respect to that uh, everybody has a right to go and stay in any neighborhood, you know, in any community in, in South Africa, if you can sort of afford. But reimagining the system, it means that we need now to begin to ask the question of systematic oppression. 
because as much as constitutionally one is allowed or have the right to to be located anywhere you want to locate yourself, but the question of affordability, the question of access to resources, particular financial resources, the question, the question of access to economic activities, the, the question of uh, injection with respect to business uh, strive, are black individuals able to sort of do that? And also perhaps ask the question of education, either the historical legacies, uh, you know, how can we deal with those systematic educational faults that were created by the apartheid system? Is the education that is called um, a constitutional right in South Africa realized or not. So once we begin to understand the complexities and most importantly, the systematic legacy that was created by the apartheid, we will then begin to think about what is then the way forward because now we're dealing with systematic issues that will need us to sort of be more robust and radical in a critical in our approach as well. You know, then it will mean that we need to begin to think about leaders who always in the front in terms of expanding the employment of social workers beyond the social welfare sector, meaning this could include appointment of social workers into political offices. You know, and secondly, looking at issues of getting robust involved into socioeconomic and geopolitical work. You know, because when it comes to South Africa, you know, it's like an element of it's a a part, not a part-time kind of a thing, but it's an add-on if you like to do. So get involved into doing issues of socioeconomic and geopolitical work as a social work, if it's a by the way that I have the time to do that. It is seldom that you get organizations that are at the front of fighting for social uh, justice and you get organizations that fight for economic emancipation, the moment you begin to do that, either one would begin to think that you're becoming too political or perhaps you're taking a side or perhaps, you know, you're argumentative about this and that. And, 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 and all of those issues that we need leaders that will begin to understand that we are dealing with a new enemy now and the enemy is a more systematic enemy that we need to begin to sort of address. And the third element, you know, it's more about beginning to consider leaders who take into cognizance the importance of evolving time, you know, which relates to ensuring that we equip and produce as per the dynamic of the new world, you know, that we need to fight issues of social justice using new ways in which could advance our agenda of uh, reaching the ultimate social justice that we, we dream for and what we want to see into our communities using the very same technology that we have at our disposal to speak for justice and fight against social injustices. And the fourth element is about understanding that it's enough, it's enough with respect to leading with solidarity. And particular, we here in South Africa we've got an element of uh, social practice that are passive in terms of uh, getting involved into, into social activism. Being passive, meaning I'm in solidarity with what is happening in a place X, Y, Z. I'm in solidarity with what is happening with respect to this particular community. We need to begin to lead in the front. And once we begin to do that, we begin to understand that it was also the time when the leaders during the apartheid were leading in France. Some of them, they've lost their livelihoods. Some of them, they've actually lost their lives. So it is within this time that we're also going to attain our true economic social justice freedom by leading in the front. So that's an important element. Anyway, perhaps one last thing is about beginning to uh, create collaborations with the veterans 
to sort of mentor a new generation is to take on the baton of leadership. You know, we have seen a new generation showing that they've got what it takes to lead the future agendas. Because in, in 2015, uh, majority of us at the time when we were at university, we, we, we sort of demonstrated that we've got what it takes to fight for free education in South Africa, to fight for decolonial education in South Africa. So we need veterans that experienced apartheid at, 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 at its heat to actually come on front and mentor us and share with us their experiences in terms of how they dealt with their systematic oppression at the time and how they dealt with their employers with respect to pushing back, uh, you know, when it comes to issues of fighting for social justice, yet the organization is serving a different agenda. How do we come to have an ethically balanced decision and ethically uh, checked kind of action that we, we put into front? So we need them to begin to sort of think around that. Hi, uh, my name's Radhika. Um, I just have a question. So it's really interesting that you brought up about social injustice and that social workers should be in the front line or find new ways or even the younger generation should speak up against this. But I want to talk about practically like what could be put into place or how can social workers actually speak against this justice? Like who would they have to network? What organisations would facilitate this? Like what what advice would you give to social workers if they wanted to speak up against this? Thanks. Uh, so when you perhaps begin to understand the nature of social work, most probably in most of the countries across the globe, you find that we, we centered around social welfare, we, we deal with issues of adoption, issues of child abuse, you know, issues of environmental justice, you know, we, we, we push in the front more from the social development context on most probably, you know, we push from the principles of ensuring, you know, that there's social justice around those elements. And I suppose one could also understand in terms of the politics that has influenced in terms of what our job should be and what is it that we expected to do. But, you know, it's perhaps pertinent to begin to realize the importance of nonprofit organizations, even though the nonprofit organizations are also in part funded by, by the state, you know, but they, they are able to somehow find themselves in a spot in which the government or the political sort of uh, powers are not in full control of, of the agenda of the nonprofit organization. In particular here in South Africa, we've seen the role that NGOs have sort of played in shifting dynamics with respect to social development and fighting for, for, for injustices. So what one would then needs to begin to understand is that we are living in a modern era way in which your practice of social work and fighting for social justice, it's not only limited to the place in which you sort of employ. We are individuals that are holistic. We are attached into various uh, networks and various uh, sort of form of uh, societies, which enables us to be able to, to practice most of, our, most of our skills in which uh, we possess as as social workers. So one can consider being part of um, social movements, supporting causes that are fighting for social justice. It does not necessarily have to be physically being part of, of those processes. So if you 
perhaps want to get involved into a hashtag movement about a particular discourse, you get involved into the hashtag movement promoting that particular hashtag. And if you want to get involved into the course in which they're going to demonstrate about a particular uh, aspect in a, in a particular location, if it's reach to you, you show up and be able to, to be part of that particular process. But also, one can begin to do this in your very own sort of organization, beginning to ask questions that are pertinent in realizing what you consider to be social justice and being able to start initiatives that brings together mind-like individuals in order to ensure that you achieve the ultimate objectives that sort of one wants to sort of achieve. But I understand that it comes with a lot of consequences and challenges that individuals often face. Because you know, when you practice a social labor, you don't practice as an individually in isolation, you practice within a particular organization. And often, if, most of the time, I should put it, that one is actually sort of registered and accredited from a particular professional board. And your behavior and what you do, it sort of somehow must, must, must align into the code of ethics that are aligned into the jurisdiction in which you sort of work into. So all of that brings intimidation, brings fears and, and, and uncertainties about what can I do and what can I not do. It is more often, you know, within the social justice and anti-racism social work that one needs to be ready to find themselves having to account about what they have done that they're not doing anything at all. So I personally find it comfortable to having to go and appear before a committee and sort of give my own account in terms of what I've done and what is that I've done that somehow in my belief it was not in contravention with a particular law and put my case forward so that I'm able to ensure that I practice this social work from a global definition perspective. So therefore, I think one needs to be also aware of those elements that comes with being in the forefront and fighting for social justice. Thanks, Ratina. Thanks for that. I guess I would like to also just clarify for myself what, I mean, you, you went into depth and you explained what social work was like before in terms of the pay disparity between the races. Is that something that is still the case today? Is there still a pay disparity between black and white social workers? And is there still, is there anything else that's new that's come about that could provide sort of an incentive for social workers? Because I guess in every country across the world, social workers are needed. Like it's such a busy and such a, you know, it's a, it's a big job. And I'm just wondering, is there things in place that sort of support people coming into the field or is it, are there still deterrents in the way that it's that, okay, well, the pay is not enough and the caseloads are too high. And mm, mm, that's, that's a beautiful question. And if you look at it from what research you have experienced in South Africa, you have experienced the high rate of unemployed graduates. That gives you an indication in terms of how we as social workers are sort of uh, viewed by by the state, in particular the social development, as 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 the sort of um, uh, maybe one can call it as the with the sole mandate about social development in the country and the house in our practice as social workers. So one can begin to see that we now got the highest rate of unemployed graduates in South Africa. And with this whole question around confidentiality of salaries and human resource, very problematic, you know, because we know in terms of the statistics that are being produced that there's a lot of differentiation between 
what a white social worker is sort of paid and what a black social worker is paid. And this is kept confidential because it's an HR policy and whatnot, you know, not only in social work, but also in other fields, you know, being engineering, you know, being in agriculture, being in medicine or wherever that could be. You see all these results, you know, that talks about uh, how much uh, white professionals are earning and how much black professionals are earning. You could easily see also when it comes to the social inequalities in terms of where white individuals are sort of residing and where black individuals are residing, it tells you that there's systematic issue that's deeply embedded in terms of affordability, but which is built from a human resource confidential point of view, you know, which one would not know. And when you also begin to understand the high number of unemployed social workers, you would see that the statistics will tell you that majority of those are actually black people. And that has to trouble you in terms of understanding who the unemployment rate affects most. And if you look at the unemployment statistics, you begin also to understand that majority of the black people are unemployed, and only minority of the of the, of the white people are actually unemployed. And if there are any, you know, so one begins to see that. So there isn't any incentives that perhaps propels the young generation wanting to become social workers, because in any way they see that their brothers and sisters are also educated, but they are staying. They're, they're at home, they're unemployed, or they have to source out an alternative sort of form of employment. Or maybe perhaps, you know, one that could be an incentive could be that they're beginning to see brothers and sisters who are migrating into other countries. You know, some are moving into, into the UK, some into New Zealand, in Australia. Maybe perhaps the young generation also may begin to think about, okay, let me get my profession or my qualification in social work so that I can I can relocate abroad you know, and have brought better prosperity compared to my own country. So when you look in, 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 into that, we, we sort of having piling up problems that we're dealing with, not only in terms of uh, issues of systematic problems in the country, but also the profession that it's supposed to assist and work in front in ensuring that all the GPV, unemployment, inequalities are actually addressed. They're at the bottom of the of the food chain. They're unable to secure even employment. So we don't have our priorities right. And with that, then therefore, it, it means that the future generation is likely not to even uh, consider doing social work. So not long ago in 2008, social work was declared as a scared scheme. But when you look at modern day, I doubt that social work is still declared as a as a scared scheme with, with the number of people and amount of individuals that are unemployed in South Africa. So there isn't any particular thing that would propel you wanting to, to do this. It's a it's a labor of love. And the picture, um, the picture that you paint there of the problem um, of social workers in South Africa actually sort of add on to what I was wondering when I read your your research paper about the social ills and the challenges faced by social workers in practice in South Africa. And so I wondered, what is the political buy-in in South Africa? What do we have, do the political class post-apartheid understand the importance um, and the value added of social workers in addressing the social inequality of South Africa today? This is very interesting, you know, because the, rec no, the recognition is not about what we are thought to be capable of doing as social workers, 
but is about what we can do as social workers from an understanding of our global definition as a social worker. So from, oh, perhaps I should say as it stands, we, we are recognized as a profession suitable for, for charity work. So from a political front, there isn't really a comprehensive understanding what we're capable of. There isn't really an in-depth understanding of what skills we possess, what are the tools that we possess as social workers to bring about a true transformative society. We, we are seen still from those olden days of charity about social work, and we are still utilized from, from that context. And when the political season comes where politicians want to be voted, you know, social life become instrumental in identifying families that they need food parcels, you know, that they, they need some form of assistance. And we are used in that element to identify those families so that the politicians will be seen on national TV that they have went to a particular family and donated uh, an amount of food about this and that, you know. So we, we're not seen from an angle of an agent of transformative society. And one perhaps also understand that we only recognize from a micro intervention only, meaning we are recognized if, as food soldiers, as individuals that can push the neoliberal kind of discourse, as individuals that we can sort of supply statistics and tick the boxes when it's, when it's needed. We are reduced in particular with all the respect that I have. We are reduced into uh, foster care and child protection. This is not what we are about in particular here in South Africa. So we're not recognized in terms of that we can deal with socioeconomic challenges of the country and, and be a key stakeholder in microeconomic uh, development. We're not recognized in terms of being a profession that can assist in a process of uh, understanding land ownership because land ownership in South Africa is still a, a, a huge topic and a huge debate that is centered around a particular race. So we're not seen within the context of that we can very, play a very instrumental role in terms of understanding the importance of land ownership. And thirdly, we're not seen as an agent for transformative society. We're not seen as essential to promote social justice and human rights. And I mean, lastly, we're not, we're not recognized as a profession, you know, with social science, humanities, indigenous knowledge to engage with people in structures to address life challenges. So until the moment in which we social workers would not want to be recognized or want to be seen, but rather take the lead and actually do what we're capable of and take on with the political agenda, we will not be able to be seen. So if we want to be seen, we are the ones who are supposed to be playing a huge role into the political arena, being involved into politics and being able to shape uh, the, the societal discourse about what is needed to realize a true transformative society. Thank you. Um, so since, you know, based on your explanation that a lot of the heavy lifting and the work would need to be done by the individual social worker because the, you know, unfortunately the government doesn't recognize the power of um, that social mm -hmm. worker has, um, so I'm just wondering, is it still your opinion that there's um, a huge disconnect between social work theory and social work practice regarding issues of race and or has the educational policy that you discussed where social justice education was now is now to be taken up by students? Has that helped oppression? Has that changed? 
um, thought processes thought processes of the young social workers coming up has it made a difference? <laughs> and regrettably, no. You know, and I mean, at a time in twenty fifteen when we fought for decolonial education, you know, we hoped, you know, that by this time we would have. Um, sort of conceptualized social work that is decolonial social work that is speaking to uh, the local problems and we have sort of uh, tools and skills and knowledge and frameworks that are deeply embedded into 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 local issues you know but uh, regrettably uh, I think we have not uh, realized that particular dream there's still a long way to go because in anti-racist social work and decolonial practice, you know, one would begin to understand that it is uh, somehow still influenced by the Western cosmology, it's still influenced by the Western epistemology. So one needs to begin to pose and wanting to ask the question, what is really anti-racist social work practice in South Africa? what is decolonial practice in, uh, in, in South Africa. You know, beginning to unpack that and understanding what would be the epistemology that would address African and South African uh, problems in the forefront, you know, without a Western tenant, without, you know, having to use the colonial mindset on how we see social work and how we see the ways in which things are going to, we have to rethink essentially the whole practice of social life from an African and from a South African uh, kind of perspective. So as it stands, I do think that we still have a long way to go uh, because it may appear in literature that we somehow reciting what already has been written in the 1950s and the 1960s, you know, in a different way, conceptualizing it as decolonial, but in actually sense, when you look at it and peel the layers of it, you begin to still understand, wait, I'm still thinking in a colonial mindset here. How do I then begin to realize a new social practice that is based on that? And how do I then influence policies to begin to mirror a true reflection of South Africa, not uh, policies that are borrowed into Western uh, epistemology and being sort of come and tried and tested in a South African context. Maybe one can make an example, you know, of this um, children's act that we, we have here in South Africa. I mean, it's a, it's a Canadian act, you know, and when you look at what it sort of puts out in terms of children's rights and whatnot, great, it's universally celebrated. But when you look in depth in terms of what is raising a child look like in an African and South African context, it is different in terms of how that policy is sort of proposing we should raise our children. So therefore it may well mean that at the macro level, we also social workers need to begin to imagine a decolonial policy practice that enables us to be sort of able to practice an anti-racist social work and also a decolonial social work that speaks to the realities of the ground and true indigenized uh, sort of practice that we, we need to see. Thank you. Um, you actually reminded me of an interesting point you made in your chapter where you talked about inequality being something that has always existed in South Africa, in South Africa, but 
you mentioned that a lot of the impact was muted because there was traditional coping mechanisms. So I'm just wondering, is it that the people of South Africa have sort of changed alongside um, colonialism or have the people and their traditions remained the same, but it's just the professional bodies have now looked at these traditional maybe ways of raising children as um, as less than or maybe not even acknowledging traditional coping mechanisms? Do we, do the social workers sort of need to start respecting and or maybe understanding those traditions in order to maybe bring back a, a sort of time where there wasn't as much of a disparity and there wasn't as much a, okay, maybe this family isn't doing so well because they're doing X, Y, and Z. Is it that there needs to be um, a shift back to the traditional or is that something that wouldn't help? I'm just wondering what you're- so yeah, yeah, yeah. So, 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 one needs to begin to perhaps understand that in South Africa and in Africa, before colonialism, we had our own forms of social relations, right? Such as Ubuntu, you know, an African way of raising a child, and such as like it takes a village to raise a child, you know. So, all these forms of of, of traditional forms were denigrated by the colonialism and were somehow disregarded as um, the acceptable ways in which um, um, one can sort of raise a child, you know, with, with the whole colonial mindset in terms of how do we look at a family, you know, how do we look at uh, livelihood of a child and whatnot. But in the same breath, socially grew out of uh, dismantled of those African sort of uh, forms of, um, of social relation, you know, which one understands that at that time it was replaced with welfare policies which uh, favored uh, white individuals, you know. So with all of that, one begins to understand that the colonial mindset sort of propelled a situation where there was more disparities that would require assistance, you know, from, from a white mindset or from a colonial mindset, to put it that way. So with all of that, then it be, we began to perhaps think that the systems that we know and the ways in which we know in terms of how do we live as African individuals are no longer pertinent because now we require probably A, B, and C that has came with the colonizers for our our existence and survival and also prescriptions in terms of what we need and how we can get those were sort of prescribed and we began to to neglect some of those traditional forms in which we were using to to sort of uh, collaboratively live and survive and sustain ourselves as, as 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 a community you know and perhaps we began to imagine you know with the decolonial project what would it be like you know to to think of new forms in which, you know, could be pertinent for our survival as African people. And I suppose the whole concept of Ubuntu principle came afford, you know, in terms of trying now to look at the new ways we have to go back to traditional forms and understanding how individuals can begin to, to survive, you know, using local ways and indigenous ways. So, you know, when you look at the, the Ubuntu principle particular, 
one sort of begin to understand there's principles that are also deeply embedded into, into social work. I mean, when you talk about principles such as respect, dignity, value, acceptance, you know, uh, solidarity, you know, sharing responsibility, joy and love, and etc. If you look at all of that, it was what is deeply embedded in terms of how African villages were living. They were sort of taking core responsibility in raising children, taking core responsibility and partnership in production of food that will be utilized by the entire community. So when we begin now to look at the traditional forms in terms of how individuals can survive, it becomes pertinent. Why? Because still individuals are located into the, 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 the geographical locations that it was sort of put by the apartheid government. You know, those who are in the villages, they're still in the villages. Those who are in the townships, they're still in the townships. So it's, it's more about how do we then begin to look at what we used to use to survive to sustain us into these modern days, you know, because what we have in the last uh, 25 or 27 years of our democracy, it isn't fast enough or it's not even working for us for that matter. What are these ways in which we were using in the past to be able to, to sustain ourselves? So it is within that in understanding that all of those principles are sort of pertinent for us to, to sort of survive and also being able to understand that in conceptualization of social work, you know, for African people to build social that is responsible to, to, to sort of respond to African problems in an African way must be a way and it must be at the center that should sort of be realized around that process. So there, 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 there is a realization around that, but the question is how do we then go about doing that without reciting the colonial mindset into what we think is ours or what we know is ours, but how do we do it in a different way that sustains us rather than having to also come up with a recited way in which it's not functioning for us. So it's it's more around around those lenses. Thank you. Um, I have my, this question is actually it's going to be a little bit personal. Um, sure. See, I'm a social work student um, very much in my first year um, and I thought you depicted very well the challenges of social work in South Africa yeah. both in our conversation today but also um, in your paper and I sort of wonder what drives you what 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 keeps you motivated in wanting to keep doing this? <laughs> yeah it's a very interesting question you know but I think for me, what drives me is the dream of seeing a better society than in which I grew up into. And many years later, having to grow in my society, things look different, but they still look the same. I suppose they look different because I've grown, you know, maybe perhaps I've moved out into the village, you know, and maybe perhaps others have moved out into the township. But when you go back into that village, that township you come from, you take a pose, you reflect, you look back and look at now and you ask yourself a question, what has changed? You realize that what has changed is what hurts you most than what it should make you happy about the progress that it has been done. So what really makes me passionate about this topic, about these conversations, 
and about being involved into issues of um, activism. It's fighting towards realizing a better society that perhaps when the future generations to come, when they hear about it, when they look back, it's, it's different for the better, not different in a manner in which it still hurts. Because from where we sit and from where we have the conversation, if you can just go and Google right now and Google inequalities in South Africa, and you go into the picture button and you click picture, what you would see is a clear indication of what South Africa looks like. You would see two different communities that are separated by a highway. On the other community, you see wealth, rich, protection, security, affluent, money, nice things that comes with it. On the other side of the road, you see informal settlement with lack of basic infrastructure, no water, no sanitation, no food, high rate of crime, and so forth and so on. That, for me, is what keeps me going. That, for me, it's rebooting the entire system as social makers, finding a way in which we will realize the equality that we talk about in our constitution. Because as it stands, we not even came close to that. So the fight towards achieving those dreams in which our forefathers and perhaps the people before us, such as the Nelson Mandela's of South Africa, wanted to see, it's what keeps me going. Because as much as they might have realized the democratic South Africa, there were a lot of issues that still were not addressed with the promise of democracy. And I suppose it is our better now to begin to fight systematic issues. So for me, understanding that the struggle now is different and it requires a new generation to fight a different struggle, it's really what keeps me going every day. Thanks. Thank you for that. And, um... What I want to ask just before we, we wrap up on your it's your informative segment is your paper mentioned and it gives quite a few statistics on um, the a breakdown of I guess wealth. So you talk about I think about sixteen percent of the population receiving quite a large amount of the country's wealth, and you also mention um, a few um, about five percent um, are still farmers. And the which kind of and we talk about the urbanization that um a small percent of the population live in mm. the urban towns and cities. So that just sort of means that the majority of the population is not living in those in in the urban areas. So I'm just wondering yes. about global warming and what you think the impact of global warming is having on uh, maybe not just the farmers but the people who maybe can't afford to live in um the city just to get your opinion on how you think global warming is impacting the country. So the interesting thing is that when you look at the extreme inequalities in South Africa, we find ourselves into a context where uh, our work is centered around uh, addressing those inequalities using the framework of social development. You find us at the center of trying to work towards finding uh, most appropriate approaches to realize some of the dreams and the goals uh, of the local people and how do we sort of come on board collectively and bring about solutions on that. 
And, you know, we haven't really intentionally from a high level of government down to, to an organizational level and also to local communities began to intentionally uh, put our efforts towards addressing issues of um, uh, global warming, you know, issues of uh, environment, you know, but we also do not see uh, how this affects us in a form of disasters, natural disasters in particular, because when you look at the extreme inequalities that I was just painting a picture of, you would see that some of these informal settlements are actually sort of laid in a riverbed. They are actually sort of constructed into an area that is not habitable for humans. And when you begin to look at the aspect of global warming and the climate question around that, we haven't began to intentionally have uh, organizations that their sole mandate is to ensure that we go into the ground, educate individuals about the importance of climate, the importance of uh, understanding global warming and the importance of how they can treat their, their surrounding and their environment and how their environment is essential for their survival and for our survival as, as humans. So we haven't began to really deal with that particular aspect. But what we deal with, we deal with the natural disasters where you found just recently in Kwasuru Natal, here we've got a, we had a natural disaster where there were floodings. And we haven't began to sort of talk about, you know, from a climate point of view, social workers, what are we going to do to educate and involve our communities to prepare ourselves for the rising sort of temperatures in, in, in our in our in, in our blue planet, you know, we have been began to say what we are dealing with. We are dealing with the aftermath of the climate change. You know, we are dealing with the aftermath of the global warming. We have been began to be proactive around that, you know, and understand why, particularly with the element of that. What does the coffers who create budgets they see us for? They see us as those individuals that responds into issues of disasters, and certainly we there to do that as social workers. But there's more that we can do. And we will realize that we've got the role that we can sort of play around that. And we haven't even began to realize what is the role that we can play in terms of recycling and how we can use recycling as a, as a, as a microeconomic opportunities for our people, you know. Because if you look at those uh, townships where individuals are staying, you know, you'll understand the amount of sort of recycling and debt that comes out of those communities. We have been seeing that as as treasure and some that we can utilize for the better without taking it to pollute some of the environment where it's actually being disposed. We haven't even began to have social work, uh, environmental activists that are speaking about the need to begin to address the issue of environment. You know, So my view is that we still have a long way to go. We still have to do a lot of things. We still have to begin to understand in terms of how do we deal with that particular issue. And I suppose some colleagues are looking into the issue, how do we use indigenous way of understanding climate and how you know climate change was seen in the olden days and how in the indigenous communities they've addressed the issues of shortage of rain and whatnot. So we, we need to push more into that front and find the best possible approach that could could assist us as, as, as humans in particular in our uh, different uh, sort of uh, environments.
Thank you very much for that. And I'd just like to say that you have provided a very clear picture of just the uh, the context um, that social work, I guess, stands in, in in South Africa. And it's a an amazing depiction, especially for those who don't know anything about South Africa. I think you've done a great job in allowing us to understand the historical context, the current context, and how that relates to anti-racist social work practice. So I'd like to thank you for that. I think I could um, speak for all of us and say that we'd like to pick your brain on this topic all day, but we unfortunately have to wrap up now. So thank you to you, Zibinele Zimba, for coming today. And thank you to our co-host, Chienge, for joining us as well. How does the social work, I mean, your your contribution is, is definitely going to be something that's, I think, going to feed the minds of young social workers today. And then to the listeners, I definitely suggest to read Zibinelli's chapter in anti um, in the in the in the book Anti-Racist Social Work International Perspectives, and it will be available as a resource when we post the podcast. So thank you, Zibinelli. Thank you. Thank you so much. The striving continues. Thank you. <laughs> thank Thanks. you. How Does the Social Work is produced by Yohai Hakat and edited by Vimal Dalal. If you liked our podcast, please give us a like and share it with your friends. To find out more about Brunel's Social Work programme, please check out our webpages at brunel.ac.uk forward slash social work or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. From Myself, Jade, and Radha. Radhika. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs> Until our next podcast.